Retain podcast. Hey, Gang Retain. I wanted to tell you about I Digress, which is hosted by Troy Sandage and brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network. It's got shows under 30 minutes, and it helps to eliminate complexity, complications, and confusion in your business uh, through a series of frameworks and strategies. Um, he talks all about scalable and sustainable success. He hits on things like marketing, sales, customer success, and more. So go check out I Digress and listen to I Digress wherever you get your podcasts. Thoughts, but yeah. Um, we've just done so much work on packaging up our, our services, like our products with strategic services and premium services in the past year that I thought this was really interesting because if you go look at the article, um, it, it really, it talks about how they package things and, and how they add value, like photo pass it's different between, you know, the, the California version and the Florida version. They, they have slightly different packaging, but PhotoPass comes with the Genie Plus offering, right? Just to add additional value to the Genie Plus offering. It's just, it's just cool. I like the way they, they did it. It's an interesting study in go-to-market packaging and configuration of, of value. Yeah. So we just hopped in to record the episode. So to set context, we're looking at how Disney has replaced FastPass with what they're calling uh Disney Genie and Genie Plus, which is a, a new package that they're going to market with. First of all, uh, another great way, I think they're probably one of the best companies at utilizing their own IP in their go-to-market. Like Genie is a character <laughs> from their, yeah. like, I mean, they're so Aladdin. good. Yeah, from Aladdin, sorry. Um, it was before Jeff's time. No. <laughs> Um, but what another great way to reinforce your brand, right? Like is in the actual packaging names and you're reinforcing a character that they're probably going to see in attractions or events or movies. So I just like that part of it. But, um, what were you just go back to a second? What were you mentioning Jay that they, so Disney, Genie, Disney genie plus was basically a new version of what they had as, as fast pass. And it was a new way that they were trying to package up specific services to enhance the experience. Yeah, I, I actually don't know the entire reason that they decided to move away from FastPass, but but my sense is that there were just a lot of people utilizing it and it was creating too big of a divide between the haves and the have nots. And so they wanted something a little bit more um a little bit more approachable, a little bit more affordable and not so rich in terms of of features for the haves, right? So it, it basically leveled the playing field a little bit while still providing some additional incremental value for those who are willing and able to pay more. Um, without sacrificing the experience for everybody else. Because I, you know, so, you know, instead of, you know, being able to book, you know, as many rides as you want in a day and be able to jump to the front of the line, you can only do like one at a time, right? Or something like that. It, it, so it, it really is, I think, bringing, bringing the, and it's less expensive as well. So it's bringing the, bringing the, bringing the two experiences a little bit closer together so that they're not sacrificing one for the other. The other thing that I, I read into this a little bit is when you looked at maybe the fast pass and even the name in the, in the name, right. Is how can you get through as many things as possible when that's really the antithesis of what you're supposed to do at Disney, right? You're, when you're at Disney, you're trying to create these valuable memories and you're trying to create these moments with your family that you're going to remember for a long time. And if I'm just running through ride to ride and I'm just thinking about being fast, it's like the opposite of what they've tried to create. And so it's funny you mentioned that. Cause I think, part of this, like you said, like you, they, they lump in 
a Disney photo pass. So they're trying to bring, I think this quality and this, these memorable experiences and these memories back into like the packaging a little bit, it seems like from maybe just uh, an outsider's view too. Yeah. That's an interesting, an interesting perspective on it too. But I mean, I don't know. I think I, Jeff, you probably heard this podcast the other day too, because we listened to some of the same podcast, but there was a guy talking about, you know, the thing to do is figure out how to make the, the line experience more engaging, right? <laughs> Have it be more of an experience itself because waiting two or three hours in a line for, for something doesn't seem like it's a great experience for, for anybody and adding to the memories. Like if anything, it makes me actually never want to go to Disney again. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Which is why I like fast. Did they fast. solve for the line? Do they, do they create a stronger waiting experience? Not in this, not with no. this, but what I think, again, like what, what I think ends up happening is, okay. So the reason I started looking into this in the first place, just to back up is we were talking about this for our support team. Like, Hey, there's, there's this concept of a fast pass, right? At Disney. Um, and, and that, that gives you a, you know, a spot in the head of the line, if you're willing to pay for it. Now, the thing that I think I always worry about, so relate that back to support, right? If you pay for premium support, should you get to go to the front of the line from a support perspective, get your question answered to get, you know, an issue resolved? I, I think in B2B SaaS, it's tough, right? Because we need the masses to have a, a satisfactory experience, not just the people who are willing to pay more. So, and I think they had the same problem, right? They want everybody to have a great experience, but you know, they still want to provide a premium level of service and there's additional revenue associated with premium level services, right? So there's, there's, there's a lot to gain by doing it, but how do you do that without sacrificing it for the masses? So that, that's why I started looking at this in the first place and sort of figured out that, okay, they've replaced the fast pass thing with Genie Plus and Genie Plus is this whole different structure it's still a premium set of services, but it's scaled back a little bit. It's less expensive and it doesn't sacrifice the experience. What was your question, Christy? I, I <laughs> talking and I completely forgot. We were talking about, I just asked, did they solve for the line experience? Because I do think that was an interesting one, like oh, the waiting, yeah. but that's not a Disney problem. That's a amusement park or theme park problem, right? Anywhere mm-hmm. we're going to go wait hours online. But I thought it was a great point because it does, I think, um, just kill the experience a little bit to your point. Like, I mean, we, we hate it. It's, it's painful. Yeah. yeah it's a B2B SaaS problem too, because customers hate waiting right in line. Oh, yep. and, and especially if they know that other people are paying more to get in front of them in the line. So how do you, how do you balance it? How do you keep your, your experience great for everyone and provide additional level of services on top that doesn't sacrifice what everybody else is experiencing from a support perspective or from any perspective? Yeah. How, how do you, I mean, when you think about customers sitting in, or let's just say a customer puts in a support ticket, right? They, I mean, they're in this waiting game. How do you, how do you make sure that that's a good experience? Like what are some of the things that come to mind for you all that like teams need to make sure that they're doing with customers who are in that wait and response game, you know, for an issue that maybe takes multiple days to resolve, like what's the right way to, to make sure and think about what are some of the key tenants maybe that you all think about in that experience? I mean, my big one would be communication, right? I just a steady flow of that. I'll yeah. tell you. So we have a we have a Nordic Shock t- treadmill that has like the iFit program associated with it, 
And we've been struggling with our iFit every morning. It like goes blank for 20 minutes and Anthony has to start and stop and restart it and literally wants to kill himself, the treadmill and everyone around him. So I, you know, he had been calling iFit and not really getting anything resolved. I went on because again, we're B2B SaaS folks, right? So we know better. I went and I was like, I know that they have a support like a digital support experience. And I went and I used their chat, um, you know, and I went through some automated responses, some prompts like two times, and then it connected me to somebody. But the connection was cool because it actually told me my number in my queue, how long I was going to have to wait. And then periodically, like every three minutes, I would get an automated prompt that would give me more information related to the topic or direct me to just entering a ticket. But before I knew it, I had a live agent who I was chatting with who gave me the documentation to go reset our, our treadmill. And this morning it's working. So I just thought that was a great experience because they found a way to digitize this constant communication and give me options, right? It was like, if you don't want to wait here, you can go submit a ticket. You won't lose your place in line. Like I just thought of all of the digital chat bot experiences, that was the best one I've actually gone through in a really long time. I, I won't name another solution that had a very poor digital experience um, in the support software space. And I, I couldn't get anybody live for days, for days. And I just kept going back to tickets and I'm like literally on the verge of tears and I couldn't get anybody and I couldn't get my problem solved. So I just thought that was a really cool one. So going back to just constant communication. So it was just a great example of even finding a way to digitize that. I was going to say the same thing, communication. How do you do it when it's a sort of a multi-day scenario? Back to your point, right? It's not a live phone interaction but but a communication one of the I, I i've been meaning to write this story down but when i was uh when i first started waiting tables back in high school i i was trained to when a new table sits down even if you're like really busy you have 15 other things going on when you see somebody sit down at that table the first thing you do is is try to get over to that table and say to them hey i'm jay i'm gonna be your server I'll be back with you in just a second. The difference in doing that and not doing that and saying, hey, you know, I'm just going to go do my things and then I'm going to get to them as fast as possible. That may be your intent, but the psychology of sitting down at a table and not knowing what's going to happen next, not knowing if somebody knows you're there, not knowing if the process is broken down uh, behind the scenes, the psychology of that on a customer is like horrible. So I think it's communication and it says little little things, right? And sort of like you said, Christy, just a little, here's your place in line. We haven't forgotten about you. We know you're here. So I would say time to first response from a support perspective, when you're thinking about that queue is really important for that reason. It's like, Hey, got your case. I'm on the, I'm on the, I'm on the job. I'm going to get back with you in this amount of time. And, you know, we're going to get you fixed. So I think it is communication, but how you do that is really important. I like that. Um, I think it's a good little segue there from, uh, you know, Disney's Genie Plus, which I'm now intrigued about. Looks like a lot of photo pass, by the way. They have this AR lens that I was just looking at. I just, you know, <laughs> went down a rabbit hole real quick. Uh, so uh, that does look pretty cool. Um, the other the other thing that we had on here that I thought was pretty interesting was um, this article about Yumini Ranganan. Ranganan? We're always going to get it wrong. So I'm always going to get it wrong. We're going to go for a third or fourth attempt. Just at like right. two. I'm Yamini. Um, so she, you know, uh, went from uh, chief customer officer of HubSpot to CEO recently. And there's this article uh, that was published about 
her sudden rise to power. And, um, you know, she has propelled herself in that company <clears throat> over a matter of years. I think she's been there maybe four or five years, uh, if I looked correctly. So, um, you know, not somebody terribly long, right. She hasn't had that long to establish herself. Uh, especially when I, when I think of, you know, thousands of employees in there. Um, so I thought this was pretty interesting, but Jay, I know you've probably had a chance to read through this. Any, any initial, um, like key points or thoughts that you wanted to pull out? I had, I had a couple, but I'm curious if you've got anything that you kind of pulled out of this article, um, that you felt like was, yeah, was relevant. I'm, I'm going back. Cause I did it back in December. Um, I think the, the one thing that was really interesting about this is th there's some other stuff on metrics too, that was here. I'm trying, I'm trying to find it, but I'm not, uh, oh, there it is at the top. I'll go back to the metrics, but I think one of the cool things that she talks about is like, wh what was your first leadership lesson? And she says, you need to go slow to go far. My tendency was just to go fast. And I, I think, you know, especially as a CEO of a multi-thousand person, you know, business or any business, like you have to slow down to speed up sometimes. I can tell you, I struggle with that just in, in my, my little organization as, as part of higher logic and, and any, I, it's, it's always been a challenge for me, but like, how do you, you know, you may know what the answer is, but getting everybody else to the answer is, is, uh, is actually way more important than knowing the answer yourself. And by the way, the, the answer may change in the process of, uh, of getting everyone there. So um, I just, I think that that's, that's cool. I think they, she also did a lot of, uh, it sounds like they did some reconfiguration of their metrics to help drive things um, in a sort of a, a different way across the business. I was actually surprised they use NPS across their business to, um, to that, that's, that is a core metric for them across HubSpot. What do you think about that, Christy? I like NPS to take action and to drive insights. And I think there's a lot you can do with it. I don't know that I would use it as a core metric or barometer of like the health of my business. Now it depends if you've got I don't know, 86% response rate, cool, then maybe use it. Yeah. Um, but I think that that makes a big difference, right? I, I would say the response rate would probably play a big part in my determining whether or not I would use it as a, a, a real core metric or not. Just, I don't know about you guys, but I, I get at best like 20, 25%. And so that, that gap of folks that aren't responding, you know, that to me is a, is a reason enough to not use that as a metric of like how we're doing. Yeah. Yeah. I think until you, you can get a response rate, that's high enough, you know, above 50%, 60, 70%. I think it's, it's really tough to even hold your teams accountable to, I mean, to some of those things as well. Right. Because some are just outliers um, of, of people and different types of personalities. I mean, I think, like you said, Christy, you, I mean, you have to figure out the right way to drive action, especially internally. Like if people are going to take the time to respond to a survey, then you need to make sure that you can show follow through and you can show follow up and really drive a good moment um, with them. So, I mean, I think there, there has to be something that you're driving there, but um, I think it's always hard to, I mean, it, it's good to see, I think where you measure up in the industry as well, but again, at the same time, um, you know, people can come out with their NPS, but you know, who knows, maybe HubSpot's response rate is 75% and ours is 12. And, you know, is that really indicative of what, everyone really thinks about our product. How, how many customers do you think HubSpot has? I actually don't know the answer to this. 
I haven't thought like but. like when we're saying customers like logos right you, like brands yeah or, yeah yeah um I don't know I'm gonna throw out like five thousand oh know. geez okay I was gonna say more like a hundred thousand it's a hundred <laughs> I don't know I, I don't I'm know gonna, I, I'm like in my head I don't know I have no idea it's a hundred hundred twenty eight thousand okay clearly I was off all right <laughs> sue me geez <laughs> um, I don't know. It's also no, early in the morning. I, I wasn't 5, to, I felt like a big number. <laughs> I wasn't trying to put you on the spot. I actually thought, <laughs> okay, I was closer than you without going over, so I won. Um, but so I would, I would actually argue in this case, even if you have a two or three percent response rate, it's probably statistically relevant with that many, with that many customers. So why not make it a core metric now? I think the important part for people that listen to this is if you have 500 customers and your response rate is 2%, you probably don't have statistical relevance, right? And so you can't use the same rules. The same rules don't apply to you, right? So be careful, um, I think is, is, the, is the key here. It's interesting for a business like HubSpot with that many thousands of customers and who knows what the response rate is, but I have to imagine that at HubSpot, they have people thinking about the statistical elements behind this as well. And if it's statistically relevant, then I would say it is a good metric to use as the core for the True. customer experience, but not all of us can do that or should. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's a good point. Hello, Gangurotain, this is Jeff. You might be listening to the show today for many reasons. Maybe you're looking to learn something new, Maybe you're looking to listen to a speaker that you love, or maybe you're driving and the co-pilot has control of the radio. Whatever the case is, I wanted to tell you about HubSpot's CRM platform and some new pieces that improve the customer experience. First, customer intelligence tools that help your teams get real-time insight into calls through automatic recording, transcription, and analysis. Think about the types of conversations and coaching that you can do with your customer teams. Next is easy share meeting links, which let your customers see availability and book meetings with you all from the HubSpot platform. The last improved data hygiene, and that always is needed in a CRM platform. So learn more about how you can transform your customer experience with a HubSpot CRM platform at HubSpot.com. The other thing that I thought was interesting about this article as well is um, they talk about the, one of the things that they talk about was how she consciously tried to fit the management style to the needs of the moment. And I thought that was interesting how you know, she was coming in as a new leader and thinking about how to instill, you know, kind of her style, what she's trying to, you know, how, how Brian Halligan, the previous CEO might've done things, how she wants to come in and do things. But I think, I don't think she was coming in and just saying, how do I, you know, this is my way or the highway, right? She actually was looking at, okay, what are the needs of the business? What are the needs of this moment, right? They were going through a big moment where Brian was the CEO. He got in this horrible accident. People were concerned, you know, what's the future of the company look like? Like this was a very, trying time. And so I think that little line stuck out to me where she wasn't just trying to come in and say, Hey, this is, this is the way it's going to be done and how, how we're going to do it. Right. I think she evaluated a lot of different perspectives and brought lenses to the, the um, table at this, at the right time. Um, and I think about that quite a bit, like what, you know, I think one thing that we tend to do, right. Is sometimes when we're in the customer org, we kind of get lost in this facade of, Hey, here's what the customer is telling me. Right. But you know, what are your employees telling you? What's the market telling you? What are other executives telling you? Like you need to have multiple lenses to try and triangulate your perspective and say, okay, is this really, um, is this really the right thing or what's happening right now? Or, and how do I make sure that I can get these other perspectives to kind of round out what's happening? So 
Um, I thought that was just a, a piece that I pulled out in here as I was reading through um, that seemed to to be good, especially because she then she starts talking through, you know, okay, um, how do I bring my own style and how do I feel comfortable doing that? Right. And she said a lot of that was due to the relationship she had with Brian, where, yeah. you know, Brian was coming in and he was the chair, but he was pushing her to, you know, you know, this is, this is now yours. Like, this is, how do we do this better? How do we do it different? And Brian was open to those changes. And it wasn't like a personal attack on Brian's style of how he was managing. Right. It was like, no, she needs to come in and, and really flourish in this role. And if she needs to do that, she needs to bring her whole self and bring her style to the, to the table. So I thought that was a good, good little anecdote that I pulled out of there too. Yeah. That the, the story about that accident is sort of crazy harrowing. Like he almost died. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, the, the one other thing here, that's a, a really, a really good point, Jeff. And I think it's tough too. like, think about founder led company, especially for that many years. Right. Um, what has it been? How long have they been in business? Like 15, 20 years? 50, yeah. About 15 years. I think 2000 going on 2007, 2008. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that's a, it's a big shift going from sort of founder to next, you know, leader coming in from the outside. Um, one of the other th interesting things in this article uh, relative to metrics is the MPS thing was one. The other uh, shift she made in terms of metrics was moving from customer churn to uh, revenue retention rate. And there, there's a nuance there. They sound sort of similar, but they're not. So if you're looking at customer churn, you're looking at that customer churn to me or customer retention is a metric, is it, is it actually a different me measure of customer satisfaction? It takes the weighting of the dollars out of it, right? So it's just looking at the number of customers that remain customers year over year, as opposed to revenue retention, which is the number of dollars that stay. So it's going to be skewed by your larger accounts, right? If you're losing larger accounts or you're keeping larger accounts, then your re retention rate's probably going to show up higher, even if you're losing a lot of little accounts. So I'd be surprised if they still don't look at customer churn in different segments. Uh, and certainly, I'm sure they look at revenue retention across across all their business segments. But I thought that was another interesting shift is that they elevated revenue retention rate and that it wasn't already a, a core metric for them. Do you look at both, Christy? Both um, like revenue as well as customer? Revenue retention definitely is the spotlight metric. It's uh, the logo retention is, is I don't say it's not as important. We look at it, just like Jay said, it's an important barometer for us to like understand customers coming and going, but it doesn't have the same weighted value in terms of how we think about the business performance as gross revenue retention, net revenue retention. Yeah, what's, when you look at, I mean, I, I think everyone always talks about kind of gross revenue retention as like 90 plus percent is, you know, a good business, net revenue retention of hundred plus is a, you know, a good business. What about on the, what about on like the, the customer side of, you know, like you said, Jay, taking out the dollars, are there any numbers or benchmarks that you've seen as like, Hey, this is good or bad or like anything to throw out there, even if it's anecdotal. Man, I, I don't know. I've never actually, I mean, you would think that number needs to be really high, like nineties plus. But you would but think that, but like to your point, right? Like your bigger customers staying and growing might be more important to your business than your smaller customers, right? Like early, again, early starting companies, you might sign on a whole bunch of little customers right. way below even what your list will be when you go, right? Like up market or whatever. And so they might stay with you forever because they're getting your service if you've not changed their pricing and, and had them grow with you. If they, if they go, it's not gonna have the same weight as if you lose one of your most strategic customers. 
Yeah, so so much of the many of the things that we talk about here are very dependent on the stage of the company, the size of the business, and the type of customers that you serve, and whether that's changed over time. To your point, Christy. So yeah, I completely agree. I've never I've never heard a benchmark for actual customer retention, but in most cases, I would say that number is, you know, meant to be very high. I would say, I, I actually think probably. Well, I would say as high or higher than your gross retention rate, right? Because if you if you figure you're losing some larger customers and some smaller customers, percentage-wise, the the number of customers you're losing should be lower than the the number of dollars you're use, you're losing if you're losing some big customers too. So that that would be my rule of thumb: is it should be as high or higher than your gross retention revenue retention rate. Yeah, it's interesting. I'd have to think about that a little bit more. I know. I was, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm gonna have to go like research that more. But I think it's like you said. I think it's interesting that they obviously are making this shift um, and thinking about. Then I would imagine. I think you had mentioned this earlier, Jay. Right? Like that probably skews or changes all these kind of level one dashboards that they're probably all looking at. Right? So every part of the organization now probably needs to change slightly to say, okay, how am I making sure that my metrics can ladder up into, you know, this revenue retention rate and you know, what's important for us to, to drive that in, in terms of like level one, level two dashboards that need to start um, kind of driving higher. Yep. All right. So this, this next, um, this next thing, we may want to save this for a whole episode. I just, oh, what do you got? I just remembered here. This is um, so Zapier, the company Zapier. Mm-hmm. Um, there's an interesting article on Saster about the lessons learned of scaling from zero to 500 employees. And that business is on fire now. Yeah. Um, they're, they're really growing fast and becoming I'm fire in a good a, way. Yeah. I'm firing a good way. Not burning down. <laughs> um, I guess that was an important. Yeah. I just wanted to make sure. Yeah. 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 Very important point there. Um, but it's uh, it's, it's growing because they are sort of a, a lightweight, simple to use integration framework between well-known products at this point. So as opposed to building your own integrations, um, you can go essentially connect to one HubSpot to higher logic or HubSpot to client success, you know, just by going in and to their marketplace and choosing integrations that have already been built by those vendors. Really cool. We actually use it for, for, uh, our platforms as well at higher logic. So, um, it's becoming a hub. It's becoming a, I think it's a got a billion dollar plus valuation now as well, Jeff yeah. um, and Christy, but the, the interesting thing about this article is they, they, um, they go through like 21 lessons learned from, you know, scaling from zero to 500 employees. So that's why I think it could be a whole episode of its own because we could actually go through and <laughs> talk about each one of these and, and compare notes on it. There's some pretty good stuff in here. Um, like, even just the first one, create scrappy solutions that you think get you 80% there and they'll last longer than you think. Like that, that one stuck out to me like right off the bat because, you know, sometimes I feel like we try to overcook things and that's not a you thing. That's like a most people thing. Yeah. We try to overcook things and, or we, we boil the ocean and instead of getting started in, in measuring something, um, we, we sort of go around and around on it until it's perfect. It's like great is the enemy of good, right? And th- that that old saying. So anyway, we could go through these now 
and talk about more of them or we could wait and do a whole episode on it because i think there's some cool stuff i'll just skim through them i think it's i think this is a whole episode worthy yeah yeah here because some of these are really good but even like some of the breakdowns of them and i'd love to hear both of your perspectives on some of these I, and the cool part too, that I don't know if we called this out, but they went to 20 of the earliest employees. So these aren't just from one person. Like this is actually 21 different perspectives of like what that they I think is actually the coolest part of this, right? Yeah. You usually only get one person's perspective. The content uh, marketers. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the other, the one I'm, I'm just going to call it one and Christy will ask you to call it one and then we'll go do a deeper dive episode. But the one that stuck out to me, just like you, Jay, is, uh, Stephanie, number 16, put startups are hard enough. Be someone you would want to work with. I think so much of growing and scaling a company is the people business, right? You're, you're in this, you have to coordinate with people. You need to work on projects together. You need to figure out how to prioritize. You need to make sure you're, you're solutions oriented. But um, there was a thing I saw recently that just um, highlighted this point too, of like being, be someone that you would want to work with because um, at the end of the day, like, if you're not, then like, you're not going to get selected for projects. You're not going to bring, you know, get opportunities brought to you. Like who wants to add you to a team? If you're just not fun to work with, you're not, you know, valuable or, or solutions oriented into a project. So like I, that one stuck out to me is like, um, you know, how do you bring this perspective and this, how do you think about the, I, I guess the reason why it stuck out to me is um, what is it? J five E's and a P is that the uh, four P's and an E four P's and an E. Sorry. I added one, but oh, no, no, I'm sorry. Four E's and a P you're right. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Four E's and a P um, is uh, four E's and a P. If you go look it up, right. It's just like, what are some of those intangibles that you can bring uh, that you can control like energy? Um, how can you bring empathy? Uh, I forget. Energi- the energizer, energizer, edge, execution, uh, and then empathy is an add on and then yeah. passion. Yeah. Yeah. For, that, that's a Jack Welch framework, by the way. Yeah. That's yeah. So, um, but that to me is like what sticks out at, you know, when you w- want to be someone to work with is like, how can you bring those things to the table? Because um, those are things that you can control on a daily basis. I can control my energy levels. I can control the way I present myself in a meeting. I can control my mindset and the way I'm going to, you know, be solutions oriented. Like those are all things that are directly in your control. And that's what I think about a lot when you say, you know, be someone you want to work with. But Christy, what's one that stands out to you? All right. So I scrolled down a bit and made my way down to number six, uh, which was Danny's. And he said, there's no such thing as a small role. Help employees understand their impact, regardless of if they're a manager or an individual contributor. And I just, I really love that because, you know, even now at Client Success, like we're not huge uh, and I've worked at larger companies. And I think it's just really important for everybody to understand how they're connected to business impact. And every role is required for us to all succeed. And I've actually heard and I've seen people leave companies because they just didn't feel connected to that and they didn't understand their importance or they didn't feel valued. And so, I don't know, that just really stuck out to me as something that I thought was important, regardless of the stage of your company, right? Every single person is there for a reason and they should understand their impact and understand that they are valued. Yeah, couldn't agree more. That's huge. And there's a whole episode in that discussion as well, because like, that's actually one of the things we're doing right now as a management team at higher logic is we have certain initiatives this year that are key initiatives for us that are going to change the business in some way as we go through the course of the year. But then there are certain things that we're just going to keep plugging away. at, keep doing the same way in the advantage framework, which I always talk about the Patrick Lencioni stuff. There are defining objectives and then there are operating metrics. And even if you're not connected directly to one of the defining objectives, which is like a new initiative, like where's the company headed kind of thing. 
everybody should be connected to a like an ex- operational execution metric of some sort, not to make it overly metrics heavy, but like the vision of the company, the like what does good look like for the business? Like everybody should know how they attach to one or the other or both of those yep. um, things for us. So we, it's funny you said that, Christy, because we're, um, or you picked that one because we're, we're going through the same thing right now, making sure that all 400 of our employees are attached to something meaningful going into 2022. I love that. That's good. All right. All right. You want to hit this last thing real quick? This is, this is like a resource. So, um, so many, many people have already found this. And I think if you search for anything playbook wise or um, any kind of process, sometimes you'll run across GitLab and uh, in their, their internal handbook, which they have published externally. So Chad Hornfeld is their VP of customer success. And um, just a, oh, wait, I'm sorry. It's not Chad Hornfeld. He's a David Sakamoto. David yeah. Sakamoto. I'm sorry. Um, I was going to say, Chad's over a customer, but maybe I missed a LinkedIn update. No, no, no. <laughs> that was completely my brain fart. Um, anyway, um, I've, I've followed him for, for years. He doesn't even know that, I'm sure. But like just followed him and the stuff he's published. And, and this handbook is so good. They have documented all of their processes, all of their playbooks. And it's not just customer success stuff. Um, the other day I was on Twitter and somebody had posted a playbook about how to run a public company earnings call. And I started scratching the surface of it and I found the link and it was to this handbook. It was to GitLab's handbook. So um, I, I listened to, a, there's also a podcast that I just happened to listen to over the break with their, I think it's their founder and CEO uh, or their CEO uh, talking about community on Saster. And they have been open like this since day one. And it's part of how, it's part of their ethos. They're an open source company um, in terms of the, the product that they build. It's open source and paid. And, and then they also consider all their processes open source as well. So anyway, if you're in customer success, or frankly, if you're in any part of a SaaS company, go check out this Get GitLab handbook. If you Google it, I'm sure you'll find it. We'll also include it in the, in the podcast notes, but um, just a, a wealth of knowledge there. If you're looking for customer success, it actually sits under the, the I think it sits under the chief revenue officer uh, part of their org. So that's where you'll find all the customer success stuff, but they've done such a fantastic job of operationalizing everything. And I can imagine it would be very easy to onboard at GitLab because of the way they've written everything down. We say that a lot, write it down. This is like the best example in the world that I can, I can point to of, of how people do that and, and what that looks like. So anyway, I just love it. You're, you're giving away a secret of mine, which is like, I, if I'm like researching anything first, I go to GitLab because they have almost a framework for everything. Like starting they have, for everything. Yeah. They have roles and responsibilities defined. They have different levels of their, of the roles they have in their company. They've got career path marketing frameworks. They've got, yeah, they have, they have all their customer success touch points to find in there. Like there's a lot of good stuff. So. That's super cool. Yeah, Christy, I feel cool. like you're doing the same. I mean, you're, you're building a lot of this in public as well. It's well, so funny. Like now that I'm looking through this, right. I think, um, my organizational architecture might shift as a result of some of how they've uh, organized their things, but we've been using Confluence to build this out. And that's been a big mission of mine is like, 
you know, just democratizing information and knowledge in our organization and just putting it somewhere where it lives. And if it's not documented, it almost doesn't exist. So, and we're just trying to share more information, right? There's folks that have been in our company for a long time that just have IP that isn't shared and known by others just because they just acquired that knowledge over time. And so we're just working and try to get as much down documented into Confluence, which is our wiki. Um, and it's, you know, we, we chip away at it and we all try to make a concerted effort to add to it every week. Um, I aspire to have something like GitLab is put together. Um, might take me a little bit longer, but <laughs> we'll get there eventually. This well, this, this cool. is from the start though. Like their, their CEO, this is a top down. Like, yeah, no, no, I see that he's got videos cool. on here talking about his vision and mission. So I love like how they even brought that in there. Um, they've done a great job. You know, I, I think one of the things that, that you automatically wonder about when you see this kind of thing is like, what, what about all of our competitors? They're going to be able to see all this. Like, they're going to know exactly what we do, like how we do it. And, and I mean, that, that is a concern, but think about the benefits that they get out of this versus the risk that they take on relative to it. Right. Yeah. It's, it's minuscule. The risk is minuscule compared to the benefits. I mean, think about, I mean, we're sitting here talking about GitLab on our podcast, right? Um, every time we search for something, you know, about how to do something, GitLab comes up. So it's the same value that we all get, right? Like we all share selflessly all the information and knowledge that we have, right? We put it out there in the community. Um, you know, most people don't charge for it, right? They're just kind of sharing things. And, and I've actually been asked that same question is like, don't you worry about sharing all of your decks and all of your templates and all of your information that someone's going to take it? I'm like, go take it, run with it. That's what we're doing I, I hope it's useful. I hope it's helpful. Right. Um, I don't know. I, I think, I think they're doing it right. And to your point, right. This is, this is, it's going to get them more visibility and, and more brand recognition and people are going to want to emulate this. So I think it's great for them. The, the one other thing I'll say about this and then I'll leave it alone, but there, I, I actually put a post out on, on LinkedIn over the break about playbooks and um, just asking people what they use to like, what do they use to go create them and document them and that kind of thing? And where do they store them? I think it's really important when you're building things to have a collaborative environment to go build playbooks. And so GitLab is like a collaborative wiki style platform too, which is why it works really well for what they do. But what they do is you can actually submit requests to modify their playbooks as part of how their platform works. Cause it's a, it's a version controlled thing. It's, it's got those capabilities, but I think that process is really important. So a lot of times we jump from, oh, I've got an idea for a playbook. Let's go write it down and plug it into, you know, whatever customer success platform you're using. And then you've gone from ideation all the way to like execution on that thing before you've sort of run it through the process and gotten people's feedback and, and got another input on it to make it a better product or a better tool, make sure that it's going to work, test it out. Um, so anyway, I, th I think the collaborative nature of building this kind of stuff is really important too, because it, it creates alignment within the business. It's not just what you write down because we can all go write stuff down. doesn't mean anybody will understand it or be able to use it. So. Yeah. That's so funny. So we did, um, one of our, we just kicked off our leadership bootcamp webinar series for January yesterday mm. and the topic was playbooks. And so I thought your post was very timely in support of what we were covering yesterday, but we talked about just that, right? Like this iterative approach to playbooks also, right? Once you've even gone through that process of creating it is making sure that you're actually going back and measuring the impact of it and the success of it and the adoption rate and, and working with your team to take that feedback and then modify it over time, right? All these things should be continuous 
lead being evolved and, and looked at. So I love that part of it. Christy, I'm curious how, how the, I know this is the thir- second or third time you're running the boot this camp. Is the third boot camp, and third. really, it's going really well. <laughs> That's good. Well, and I'm, and I'm curious too, right? I mean, have you, this is a, this is something you're offering not only customers, but anybody in the market, like it's, it's just an open community we put it out there. It's, you know, platform agnostic. So I don't talk about client success and how I'm using it. Maybe I'll reference some of the things that we do in it, but it's not a showcase for our platform or our tool. It's about best practices, right. And empowering leaders and community members with how to tackle certain strategic initiatives. Right. So yesterday was playbooks. Next week, we're going to talk about like your customers goals and like how to how to identify them how to document them manage them over time and hopefully achieve them we're going to get into cabs this season too uh for this session so customer advisory boards um all different information around that and the last one we're gonna round out with some customer marketing programs so each each boot camp we've tackled different different topics and you know people seem to be enjoying them so far cool well i'll be in the cab and the customer marketing sessions so um that's cool. Yeah. I was just curious how those, it seems like that the, your guys are getting good response and um, you know, those are going to be a good, like you said, I mean, it's, you're serving a need in the community. You're also um, you know, like you said, it's a subtle way. I know you're not directly selling client success, right. But it's a subtle way for people to get to know you and have a great brand experience before they potentially, you know, pay you dollars for being a customer. So um, I, I like, like to think approach. that Chris Walker would give me a thumbs up on this strategy of like ungating and just selflessly giving content out to the community, <clears throat> educating yeah. people first and talking about your brand last. So for sure, following anything that I've heard from him, I'm, I'm hoping that he would give me at least a B plus on this strategy. <laughs> I like it. I think he would. All, All right. right. Hey guys, thanks so much for taking the time to listen to the Gain, Grow, Retain podcast. If you liked what you heard, please take a moment and share the podcast with your friends and colleagues and subscribe. We really appreciate it. Talk to you soon.